You can turn in your Bibles to Luke 6. We're actually going to be looking at a couple words today. Let's see. This thing down there. Miracles never cease. More than one name, anyways. Luke chapter 6. And as you find it, I just want to ask you to think about something. Think about the person who led you to the Lord. Now, you probably know who that is, but do you know the person who led them to the Lord? How about the person who led the person who led you to the Lord? Or the person who led the person who led the person who led you to the Lord? You ever think about that? Do you ever think about your spiritual lineage, what your spiritual tree would look back, traced all the way back to Jesus? Wouldn't it be great just to have a big chart on the wall to see all the people who are involved in you hearing the gospel? Even if you came to the Lord by a tract or something, who wrote that tract? Who led that person to the Lord? You know, if you came to the Lord with a Gideon's Bible, I mean, how did you get that Bible? Who placed that Bible there? Or who translated that Bible into English? Who died to make sure you could have a Bible and you could be saved? Through that. You ever think about that? Do you ever wonder what apostolic spiritual heritage you have? If you were to trace your spiritual lineage all the way back, do you think you'd go all the way back to Peter or James or John? Or maybe Philip or Bartholomew or Simon the Zealot. Some of you might even be traced back to Judas Iscariot. You know, he did go out and preach the gospel. And, you know, as unfortunate as it may seem, God uses unbelievers to accomplish his will. And you may be, Judas may be the last person between you and Jesus in your spiritual heritage. Or maybe your spiritual line bypasses the apostles altogether and you just go to Jesus and somebody Jesus shared the gospel with, and that person went on to preach the gospel, and you just bypassed the apostles altogether. But we all have a spiritual lineage. And maybe we go back to Philip or Bartholomew or Simon the Zealot. And that is who we want to look at this morning, those three men. I know your bulletin says Philip and Bartholomew, but as I was studying, I thought, you know, I might as well tack on Simon the Zealot since the Bible doesn't say anything about him too. You're wondering, how are you going to preach about people who don't, you'll see. It's tricky, but we're going to do it. We've been doing character sketches, which is a little bit uh, different than our normal plan of attack and our sermons. Looking at people, the apostles' lives, as just people who are saved by grace and trying to learn lessons from them, both positive and negative, that we can either apply or avoid in our life. Of course, Luke in Luke chapter 6 is, is telling us about Jesus' early ministry. He's still ministering in the area of Galilee, and, and Luke just stops and gives us a list of the apostles. So we are going through that list rather slowly and carefully to see what we can learn from these men. So this morning we come to Philip and Bartholomew and Simon the Zealot. So if you have your Bibles, look at Luke 6.12 and follow along as I read. And it was at this time that he, that is Jesus, went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when he came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew. And Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, who is called the zealot Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This morning, I want to show you three things, three lessons you can learn from Philip and one grand lesson you can learn from Bartholomew and Simon, the zealot. So let's look at our three lessons from Philip first. The name Philip is a compound of two Greek words. The first, philos, which is love, and hippos, which is horse. It means lover of horses. It was a common Greek name at the time. But the problem is, when you look in the New Testament, there's four Philips. And sometimes they're hard to sort through. There is the Philip, son of Herod the Great. 
And this Philip, uh, his wife was um, Herodias and his brother, who is also called Herod in the Bible. There's, you know, the Herods are just a nightmare to try and sort out. But um, that Herod, Herod Antipas, took his half-brother's wife as his wife. And if you turn back and you look at Luke chapter 3, Luke 3, verse 19, you'll see this being mentioned concerning the ministry of John the Baptist. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him, that's John the Baptist, because of Herodias, his brother's wife. So the brother being spoken of here is Philip. Philip, the son of Herod the Great. Of course, John rebuked him, so he pitched him in prison. But Herod had another son by his fifth wife. He had lots of wives. Fifth wife, Cleopatra of Jerusalem. This Philip was the Tetrarch of Iturea. And he was a good ruler. And he rebuilt the city of Panias into Caesarea Philippi. And this Philip is mentioned in Luke 3, 1, if you look there. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, we won't read the rest because it's too hard to pronounce, but... That's another Philip that we have there. So we have those two Philips who are sons of Herod, one by one wife, uh, Mary Amni, and the other by um, Cleopatra. Then we come to another Philip, and this is the Philip that appears in Acts chapter 6. This is, one of, this is one of the seven chosen men who were called upon to meet the needs of the Greek or Hellenistic uh, widows. And if you remember at that time, the church was growing. All these people came for the pilgrim's feast and then the gospel was presented and many came to the Lord and then they wanted to stay. The problem is, is they hadn't intended on staying, so they didn't have any provisions. So then the, the church then, the new brand new church was unburdened with trying to take care of this huge amount of people who didn't have resources or the ability to take care of themselves and they had all these physical needs. Well, the apostles were trying to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The problem is there were all these physical needs so they had to appoint some men and Philip was one of those men who was appointed to meet the needs of those Hellenistic or um, Jews who had adopted much of the Greek culture widows. Later on, according to Acts 8, it is Philip who became a a powerful evangelist, and he is called Philip the Evangelist to distinguish him from Philip the Apostle. He was the one, uh, for instance, in Acts 8 who led the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. So those are three uh, Philips. Uh, Ours is Philip the Apostle, who was called to follow Jesus the day after Peter and Andrew. We read this in John chapter 1. Verses 43 and 46, where it says, And the next day Jesus um, purposed to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Here we see... Um, Philip, right after coming to know Jesus, bringing somebody to Christ, leading somebody to Christ. Later on in John chapter 12, verse 20, and now this is way towards the end of Jesus' ministry. Um, Philip has seen Jesus do all of these miracles, and, and of course it's right before his Passion Week. And in John chapter 12, verses 20 and 22, it says this, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Peter came and told Jesus. Now, what's interesting is in both of these instances, Philip is involved in leading people to Christ. And we don't know why these Gentiles, these Greek unbelievers, sought him out. It may be because he had a Greek name, or it may be because he was one of the Hellenistic Jews. We don't know. But anyways, they sought him out, and he's bringing people to Jesus. And I think this gives a good example and a first lesson for us, and that is you need to be leading people to Jesus like Philip. 
from the first day of Philip's call to follow Jesus, all the way up in the end of his ministry and after that, Philip is leading people to Christ. Now, why would anyone do this? You know, a lot of times, uh, you know, people struggle with sharing their faith and a lot of it gets down to motive. What is your motive? You know, whenever there's a crime, sure, the crime happened, but the police always want to know the motive of the crime because motive makes a huge difference. So why would anyone want to share the gospel with anyone else? What is our motive? What is your motive? Well, there should be a primary motive that all of us should have, and that is this, to glorify God. The Bible says we are to do all things to the glory of God, to glorify God, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That is the reason why we exist, is to glorify God. And it glorifies God when you go out and obey him and tell people about Jesus and what he has done for them. And it glorifies God when somebody repents, receives Christ, and then for all eternity, that person worships God in heaven. That glorifies God. And so that should be the primary motive. Now, there is a secondary motive, and that would be love for people. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, you don't have to be a scholar to do a little search on hell and find out it is a very bad place. Weeping, gnashing of teeth, a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm dies not. A place of outer darkness. A place of torment in black flame, away from the presence of Christ, away from the holy angels being tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, if you love somebody, even if you love somebody a a little bit, you wouldn't want them to go to a place like that, especially when you realize you deserve to go to a place like that. And you know what it takes for somebody to not go to a place like that. And so for your love for people, you should share the gospel with them. Lead them to the rescuer of souls. Now, whenever you're sharing the gospel, different things happen. And some people get discouraged for different reasons. You know, you can give somebody, offer somebody the water of life, but you cannot make them drink it. If somebody has an incurable disease and you have the... The medicine that will cure them, you can offer them the medicine, but you can't make them take it. And your responsibility as a Christian is not to regenerate people, illuminate them to the truth, grant them repentance, and save them. That's not your job. Your job is to say, hey, how about some water of life? There, that's it. You can't make them drink. And if they don't want to drink, that's fine. You can tell them about Jesus, about his death on the cross. You can tell them about God's holiness and how God must punish sin. But Jesus took upon him the sins of the world, suffered in our place, died our death, was buried and rose again from the third day conquering death. And that all they need to do is place their faith in him and be saved. And you can say, I'm not talking about mental assent either. I'm not just saying agreeing with the data. I'm talking about agreeing with the data and trusting in the person of the data. I mean, turning away from your sins. I mean, following after Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. Believe, faith, trust, a volitional faith, a faith that does something, not just believes something. You can't grant people repentance or salvation or regenerate a stony heart. But you can give them the medicine, you can give them the living water and say, here it is, this is what you need. And if they don't accept it, okay, okay, that's all right. But at least give them what they need. I think if we talk to people in this room, I think most of us would probably say that somebody talked to us about the gospel multiple times. And maybe that first or second or third or tenth or fifteenth time, we didn't want to have anything to do with it. We kept hearing the truth, but we rejected it, rejected it. And that truth kind of were like seeds planted in our heart, and eventually they sprouted. And then we came to the Lord. And so don't be discouraged just because you give the gospel to somebody and they reject it. So it's okay. It's all right. It's good. People ask me things like, well, does it bother you when people get mad at you? When you preach, I said, no, man, I'm glad. 
tells me I'm doing what's right. I mean, that's what Jesus said, right? You will be persecuted. Okay, that's it. Don't take upon yourself the the burden of trying to save people. That's too much. I mean, it goes crazy. There's so many manipulative tactics. Well, if you don't share Christ with that person, they're going to be in hell. No, they aren't. No one goes to hell that God wants to save. No one. God saves every single person he gives to Christ and loses none. That's what the scriptures teach. He just wants to use you. So he can bless you. So he can give you the thrill and, and just the praise. It's so neat when, you know, you share Christ with somebody and that they come to the Lord right there. Wow. And it makes you praise God more and give him more glory, which is what it's all about. God's glory. But if somebody doesn't come to the Lord, don't, don't beat yourself up about it. You don't, you, you aren't the savior. You're just the messenger. And so be a good messenger. And so, do it for the glory of God. Do it for love for other people. Third, good motive is do it because you're thrilled to be a Christian. Are you glad you're a Christian? I mean, are you just psyched that you're a Christian? I mean, didn't it just psych you? Isn't it great to just be able to go to bed and know that all your sins are forgiven? That even though you're a loser and even though you keep sinning against Christ, he keeps forgiving you? That nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? That he has you and he's going to perfect you until the day of Christ Jesus even though you're fighting against him? That is so good. Oh, man. That just, that, that excites me. And it should excite you. And you know who the best evangelists are? New Christians. You lead somebody to the Lord and what do they do? God's spirit comes upon them so mightily. They just think, wow, I can't believe. I didn't realize this before. Where was I? And what do they do? They find everybody in their family go, hey, I met Jesus. And guess what? He is so great. Look at what the Bible says. And of course, their response from their family is like, Oh, no. Another Jesus fanatic. And yet they tell people and tell people and tell people about the Lord and they're doing what everybody should always do. Because we all should be just happy and overflowing with joy that we know Jesus. You know... Some Christians are really bad advertisement, you know. They're all depressed and, you know, I'd like to tell you about Christ. I'm depressed and persecuted and struck down. and But you could be like me. Do, do, do you want to be a Christian? You can't do a lot of fun sins. and But... You get to go to heaven. What is that? People look at you and go, get away from me. (laughs) Is it contagious? (laughs) Yeah, sometimes we we put on such a bummer, solemn, whatever, man. We should be psyched. You're a thrill. And even though... Even though the world comes against you, even though you're rejected, even though people say, get away from me, you religious freak, quit cramming your religion down my throat. I don't want anything to do with you hypocritical Christians, man. Just keep doing it. Remember what Luther said, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not at him. His rage we can't endure. Why? For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. We win! Oh yeah, there may be some people... They get mad at you. So what? You know, it's like coming to a guy and uh, rescuing him. I, uh, there was an ironic thing in a cartoon movie that just came out, The Incredibles, where Mr. Incredible saves this guy who tries to commit suicide by jumping out of the window, and then the guy sues him. <laughs> you know, sue me. I saved your life. Sue me. You know, hey, I'm trying to give you eternal life. Sue me. Get mad at me. Yeah, don't. Don't worry about that. 
That happens. They did it to Jesus. They're going to do it to you. He said, it's just normal. Man, be psyched. They'll be psyched. Have your zeal and your passion for Christ. Think about all the things. That, and when I start sharing Christ with somebody, my, I can feel my blood pressure. I mean, it's everything I can do just to sit down in my chair because sometimes I want to leap across the desk and go, listen to me! This is good! I'm telling you it's good! Now, what is worth more than Christ? What is worth more than any spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? Think about that. Now, I know that if somebody gave you, you know, some big mansion or you won some big prize or inheritance or they gave you a Ferrari, you'd be cruising around. Look what I got, man. Look at how I got this worldly thing. And you have way, way more than that in Christ. Who are you telling about it? One. No one. That's not good. That's not good. You should be excited to tell people. But if the glory of God is not enough, if your love for others is not enough, if your zeal and excitement about knowing Christ is not enough, then here's a cold, distorted way to looking at it. You have to do it. Because God commands you to do it. And he says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. And that's pretty serious. You won't stand up for Christ. He won't stand up for you. Of course, you should just be excited to know God. You should love other people enough. You should be thrilled about everything that God has done for you and it should compel you. But if that isn't enough, you have to do it. Because you're commanded to make disciples. You're commanded to share your faith. And you have to do it. Now, if you're out there and you're sitting there, well, okay, I know I need to do it, but I'm just not good at it. I, you know, every time I do it, I start stammering. Well, then, hey, open your bulletin and look in there where it says, Pastor Dave Hinch is teaching a basic evangelism class. And then you're thinking to yourself, well, I took it one time. I'm still not very good. Take it again and again. And again, until you get good, until somebody pokes you. Jesus died on the cross for your sin, was buried, and rose again the third day. Repent and believe. You know, out it comes. People ask me things like, doesn't it, doesn't it kind of get boring when you're, you know, you're teaching the same Bible study or the same thing over and over again in this series or that? No. Every time I do, I learn new stuff. Every time I realize how much I forgot. I, I forget so much now that I'm becoming dumber and dumber with age. There are times when I, I have this really complicated system. It's not complicated, but it's a very precise system for filing all of my sermons and Bible studies. So I can call up Ruth, you know, and be in Zimbabwe and say, that file is in this exact place. And she can just go to it. And, and sometimes I'll be sitting down and I'll be writing this study because I need to write a study. And I go to save it and there's already a file with that exact same name. And then I open it up. I realize I've already done that study six years ago. And it's better than the one I have. And then I read it and go, man, I didn't know I knew this. It's because I forgot. And you know what? Sometimes you just need to go to things over and over again. It's okay. My wife and I used to go, like to go to the um, uh, oh, Campus Crusade has a, this part of their ministry called Family Life Conferences. If you've ever gone to one, they're really fun. They're kind of basic marriage stuff. And we went to one of those eight times. And people would say, well, you know, I mean, you've gone to it eight times. I mean, you know, haven't you figured it out yet? So we're getting better. You know, we're getting better. We're still learning. We're, you know, every time we go, we get reminded of what we need to do. And yeah, you need to be reminded over and over. Otherwise, we could read our Bibles once and put it away. And so if you're having, if you're uncomfortable about sharing the gospel with somebody, then just take the evangelism class over and over again. So every time Dave offers it, oh, they're here again. Oh, they're here again. Pretty soon he'll say, hey, I'm not coming next time. You're teaching. <laughs> Learn to share your faith. Do it for the love of God. Do it for the glory of God. Do it because you're thrilled to be a Christian. And if you have to, do it just because you have to. The other three should take care of it. That's what Philip did. That's what you need to do. That's what I need to do. Secondly, second lesson we learned from Philip is that you need to grow in your faith. 
I think we all need, we realize we need to grow in our faith. Turn to John 6, John chapter 6. Here's a great example. I love, you know, one of the things I do is when I read my Bible, I, I, I like to not only learn what's being said, but I like to take notice of how people are saying it. I, I want to know how to do it, um, since that's kind of something I do. And, and here is a situation where Jesus um, is going to be feeding 5,000 people. And this is what the text says. Look at verse 1 of John 6. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So Jesus has been doing all of these miracles. Philip's been saying this. They're in Philip's hometown. I mean, they're in his turf, his area where he grew up. He knows the place. Look down in verse 5. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him. Later on, it says that there's 5,000. That may just be just men. So we may be talking about way more than 5,000, maybe 10,000, maybe 15,000 with women and children. Who knows? A very large crowd. But even if there's only 5,000, that's a lot of people to feed. So he sees a very large crowd was coming. He said to fill up. So, where are we to buy bread so that we may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. He knew where the shop was, the giant bread shop. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. For everyone to receive a little. A, a denarii is a day's wage. So we're talking about, you know, if one guy were to work pretty much a whole year, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't even give him a little bit. Now, Jesus is, wants to teach Philip something. Philip has already convinced Jesus is the Messiah. He's already seen Jesus perform tons of miracles. He knows he's got power. And so he says, so, you know, since this is your hometown and this is your turf, where are we going to get bread for all these people? And this is what's interesting. Philip's first thought is money. Money. Now this is, this is amazing. This is just like us. Here's a need. Jesus knows there's a need. But he knows that Philip, though he believes he's Jesus the Messiah, though he is... Seen him do miracles and is probably very amazed. When he brings this issue up to Philip, Philip doesn't realize he's talking to the person who spoke the universe into existence. Philip's first thought isn't, well, Lord, what can you do for them? His first thought is, let's see, some mathematical calculations here. 200 denarii. You know, bread is so many shekels. Uh, his first thought is he, he goes to human resources. He goes to worldly resources to try and figure out how he might feed this huge multitude. So he guesses how much money it would take. And what does this tell us? Philip needed to learn more about Jesus. He needed to know who he was talking to and the resources Jesus had. Remember, Philip had already seen all the miracles, but he had, hadn't got to the place where Christ was his trust for everything, which is what we should do as believers. Jesus should be our first line of resource. When you need some, Lord, off goes the prayer. Oh, we have this great need. Lord should be your first thought. Not, let's see, what's the balance on my MasterCard? Or my Visa? How much do I have in the bank? Or what does the budget say? So often we're, we're quick to go to the uncertainty of riches to try as, to bail us out. And it betrays something. It betrays that we have lack of faith in God. We forget that the very God of the Bible who spoke the universe into existence is the one who wants to bless us with good things. And instead we go to money like Proverbs 11:28 says he who trusts in his riches will fall. Paul speaking to Timothy in Timothy 
17 says this, listen to this now, instruct those who are rich in this present world, and to be rich in this present world means to have more than you need. So here we all are. Not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Command, do not fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Why? The text says, God who supplies, but not only supplies, richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. That should be your first line of thought. When something comes up and you think, oh no, this person's sick. Oh no, we need this thing. Oh, we need to build this building. Oh no, we need to do whatever. Who are we going to beseech? The finance committee? The budget? Our MasterCard? The bank? God, God, God has all resources and he loves his children. He's not going to give them a rock or a snake. He's going to give them good things. He blesses us with all things to enjoy. There's a church that was needing to build a little extension, kind of what we're doing. And uh, so they were going to save the money and they were going to build this because they needed the room. And this church down the road, this Catholic church came to them and said, hey, you know, we want to buy your building. And they had a pretty good chunk of property there, I think about, you know, 10 acres. And they said, no, no, we, we, we don't want to sell. A couple weeks later, the Catholic church showed up again. We want to buy your church. Well, we talked about it. The leaders talked about it. We, we don't want to sell. How much would it take? What would it take? Say, so, okay, we'll talk about it again. So the elders got together and said, let's say, let's see this prime piece of property over. Tell them we want these 20 acres. We want to be able to design a building that we want that would meet our needs and they pay for it all and the property and give it to us. And then we'll move out and give them this. And so they said, okay, this is what it'd take. And they said, okay, and they did it. They're in the new building today. Now you think about, whoa, that's amazing. That's just the point. God loves to do amazing things. Why? Because then we go, look what God did. You do average things that we do, then we go, look what we did. And we take the glory. God wants to bless those who have faith in him. But he doesn't want to bless doubters. He doesn't want to bless doubters. He doesn't bless disbelief. Now, if you're one of those people who tends to go to your worldly resources and your credit cards and your bank... Whenever a need comes up, this is the solution. Read your Bible. And just read how God parted the Red Sea. You're in an apostle situation. You're there against the Red Sea. Here comes Pharaoh with his mean, nasty army. What are you going to do? Oh, no. Pillar fire comes down, holds them back. Sea parts, you cross through. The same God we worship, the same God we sing songs here to here today is that same God. The same exact one who caused manna to fall out of heaven. The same one who raised people from the dead. The same one who made the axe head float. The same one who multiplied the widow's grain and oil. The same God. He is the same God. And he's just waiting for us to trust him, to have faith in him, to rely on him, to not fix our hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So do it. Learn to trust God first and foremost. Learn the lesson that Philip needed to learn. Third, we can learn from Philip that we need to have a hunger for God. I love this part. Turn to John 14. John tells us about Philip. It must have been buds. John 14, verse 8. Jesus just told the disciples that to know him is to know the Father. And because they know him, they do know the Father. And Philip says in John 14, 8 this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And that is enough for us. Think of that request. He's talking to Jesus. Show us the Father. You can just tell he's got a hunger. I would like to see the Father. Can, can you? I mean, if you just show that, that is enough. (laughs) 
If you could just show us God the Father, that would be great. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe in me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. He's saying, Philip, listen, when I speak, you're hearing the Father. When I do miracles, I do them by the Father. You know me. You know the Father. Because I and the Father, we're one. Does Philip remind you of anybody when he says, show us the Father and that is enough? Maybe a guy in the Old Testament who said, show me your glory. Moses. Moses. Moses in Exodus 33, 18. Here he is. He's talking with God. He sees the miracles, the pillar of fire, the cloud, the manna, all of that. And when he gets an opportunity, he just says, can I just see the whole thing? I want to see the whole thing. And that is enough for me. <laughs> you know, it's interesting how the moth is attracted to a flame, though the flame destroys it. Think about that. It's irresistibly drawn to the light. The, the light, which is caused by the flame, destroys it. Being an insect, it doesn't understand the intensity and heat and consuming nature of the flame, so it draws on to its own peril. And all true believers are like moths. We are insects in our understanding of God and His infinite glory. And yet we're drawn. We want to see all of Him. When we know Christ, we are drawn to the light, even at our own peril. We are like Moses, show me your glory. Like Philip, show us the Father. We would see God in all of his glory, though it destroy us. And you know, if you're not a believer, this is not something you want to do. But believers, they want this. Oh, they want this. Jesus said in John three nineteen through 21, this is the judgment that light is coming to the world, speaking of himself, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. Two opposite reactions by two kinds of people. The unbeliever flees from God. The believer draws close even at his own peril. He wants to see everything. He wants to be engulfed in the radiance of God's glory. He just wants to be scrubbed clean by the intensity of God's purity. Philip wanted to see God the Father. What about you? Do you want to see God? If you don't, you may not know God. I mean, just imagine yourself right now. You die, some angels transport you to heaven, and you know that that's Christ up there, and you just bow your head, and they just lay you at his feet, and there you are all prostrate at the ground, feet terrified, Shamed and Christ is there and his eyes are like a flame of fire and you know right then all the sins of all your life as a Christian all flash before your eyes and you know you never love Christ like you should have you know he gave you all the resources you needed to live for him in holiness you know all of that and there you are on the ground and all those times when you let him down and you know that you could have done better and you didn't that you didn't deserve to be saved you didn't deserve his grace and there you are in a crumpled mass shamed at your life. And yet, you got to look. You got to look at him. Even though it kill you, you got to see him. So you do. And as John says, Beloved, now we are the children of God and has not appeared as yet what we shall be, but when, but, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. We will look in his face. 
then face to face. And because we'll be glorified, we'll be able to handle it. Isn't that great? That's what all believers love to think about. They long for that. Oh, yes, I'm a sinner. Oh, I don't even care if you just stick me and just put me in charge of the broom closet in the New Jerusalem. That's okay. I just want to be there. I want to see Jesus. And so this should be a longing that you should have to know God, to seek his face, to see him in all of his glory. It starts in this world by plunging yourself into the word of God, where God shines through as in a mirror, and he transforms you from one glory to the next as you see him in the pages of scripture. Okay, but what do we learn from Bartholomew and Simon the Zealot? Now this is tricky, because you know that the scriptures don't say anything about them. Maybe you didn't know that. Well, they don't. They just list them in the names of the apostles. And I was thinking to myself, what am I going to say if it doesn't say anything about them? That is the trick, isn't it? So I thought, well, you know, even though they aren't, even though they aren't described their deeds specifically, what they did, there are some things that are told us about apostles in general, and since they fit into that category, it specifically applies to them. Whatever is true of the apostles, plural, is true of them. So we can learn about them from the statements made to apostles. For instance, the scriptures say the apostles had great privilege, and they were chosen by Christ, a few select numbers. There were 12 initially. Judas hung himself. The apostles appointed Matthias to fill Judas's place, and then Jesus called Paul to be an apostle, converting him on the Damascus road. Apostle is one who is sent out to proclaim the gospel with authority and power, and that's what an apostle is, and Bartholomew and Simon the Zealot were two of those privileged individuals. That's what we know about them. In Matthew ten nineteen, Jesus said, you don't need to be worried. When, they, when they, they deliver you up to the courts and they start persecuting you, you don't even have to worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and will tell you at that moment. Wouldn't that be great? To just, just you know, whenever you get into a pickle, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, here it is. Say this. Say that. Ah, that would be good. In John 14, 26, Jesus told the apostles, but the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He will give you a retroactive photographic memory. You'll be telling somebody about me and every single thing that you witnessed, all those miracles and all my teachings will just come to your mind and you will remember everything. Wouldn't that be great? And you could write a gospel without resources. Seth, he knew what that was. Um, later in John sixteen thirteen through 14, Jesus said, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into the truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose it to you, disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me for he will take of mine and will give it to you. That is so great. It would be so great to just come up here and wonder, I wonder what we're going to preach this morning. Holy Spirit tells me, okay, out it comes a perfect inspired flawless sermon. I know you like it better. I'd like it better. (laughs) So Jesus promised the apostles, not everyone, the apostles retroactive photographic memory that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and tell them what to speak in moments of trial. And when they preached, the Holy Spirit would give them the data. Not only that, but in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight, Jesus made this promise to the apostles. He said, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the son of man will sit in his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You know what that means? Bartholomew and Simon the Zealot will be kings sitting on thrones, just like, you know, Peter, James, and John, and the rest. Just as much kings. In John 14, 12, Jesus made this incredible promise to the apostles. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me and the works that I do, he will also, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. 
Think about that. The apostles did greater works than Jesus. Think of all the things the Gospels tell us about Jesus. And Jesus said, you will do greater works, which means they did. And just because they aren't recorded doesn't mean they didn't do them. They did incredible works. Jesus said they would, and Jesus can't lie. In Acts 1-2, Jesus tells them they will receive specific orders from the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, which freeway should I take to work today, Lord? This one. You know, what, what college should I go to? This one. Wouldn't it just be good to just to have God just helping you in your business and your life and whatever, just giving you exact specific information? There you go. The apostles had that privilege. 1 Corinthians 12, 8, it says, God has appointed the church first of the apostles. They are at the head of the food chain. You can't go any higher than that except Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul, defending his apostleship, said, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles, telling us that the apostles did signs and wonders and miracles. That is the sign of the apostle. We see that in the beginning of Acts as they're doing signs and wonders and miracles. Acts chapter 2 verse 43 and 5:12 says it specifically. Ephesians 2:20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That is this church and every other church that glorifies God is built upon the teaching of the apostles. Turn to Revelation 21:10. There's a point in all this. We'll get to it in just a second. Revelation 21:10. And following. Says. John is talking about what's happening to him. They're describing your future place of residence. You want to know where you're going to live? Here it is. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And showed me a holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north, three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. And it goes on to describe how each one of these foundations is like, you know, a huge chunk of amethyst, not it infinite chunk of amethyst only 1500 miles by 1500 miles a small chunk and all these different kinds of precious stones and huge slabs all creating the foundation of this gigantic city imagine how amazing it would be for you to be traveling in new york and you know you're standing there you go to the empire state building because it's famous and you know you're kind of dizzied looking up at it going wow And then you notice this big bronze plaque and it says, this building was built in honor of, and your name is there. I mean, wouldn't that be incredible? Me? And all the people who go by, see that, see your name. Well, you know whose name is on the foundation of the new Jerusalem? Bartholomew and Simon the Zealot. And the other ones as well. Think of the honor, think of the privilege that all the, the, the saved men and women of all the ages and angels for eternity will be able to see them be honored in the new Jerusalem. But there is a grand lesson here and get this. Nothing said about them in the New Testament in specific. All their deeds are passed over. You know they did greater deeds than Jesus. They're not, not even, nothing's mentioned. Nothing. And here's the lesson. As a Christian, you are to serve God for his glory. You are not to serve for the praise and glory of men, to get accolades from men, to get encouragement from men, to have men feed you and to steal glory from God. No, you are to give the glory to God and serve God because it's right. And even if your whole life you served and did incredible acts, even greater than the acts of Jesus, and no one ever noticed it, God does. God notices everything you do for his glory, and he never forgets.
and he will reward you. And what's amazing is this. You don't deserve to be saved, but he saves you by his grace. He gives you gifts by his grace. He empowers you by his grace. And then you, motivated by his grace, do his works by his grace to give him glory. And then he rewards you. He rewards you for all eternity. And so what we learn here from what is not said about these great men is it's okay to not receive your honor and glory here on earth because Jesus will reward you. He will reward you. He is a loving and faithful Lord and he will not forget your labor of love on his behalf. We need to take the advice and encouragement of Paul who said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, toil is not in vain in the Lord. As you toil for Christ, it's never in vain. Take Paul's advice in Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we faint not. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. Jesus encouraged his followers with these words in Luke 18, 19, or 29 and 30. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. You won't be able to outgive God. You just serve God for his glory. Nobody ever knows that you were the person who folded the bulletins for those 28 years. But Jesus knows. And that's all that matters. So when you leave here today, do you have a commitment to lead others to Christ? Are you going to do that or not? Are you going to leave here this morning with a commitment to grow in your faith or not? Are you going to leave here this morning with a desire and hunger to seek God's face or not? Are you going to leave here this morning living for the glory of God or not? That's what we learn from these men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and what it teaches us. There's so much here, so many good things. Father, we know we are so unworthy We are so unworthy that we could even come before you and worship you. We know that you have done it all. You have saved us. You have called us with the holy calling. You have given us grace upon grace. You have given us the fellowship of the saints, encouragement, and everything we have. Oh, Father, may we use all that we have for your glory. And, Father, even if we don't receive praise and encouragement from men here on earth, Help us to do it all for your glory, knowing that our praise is to be from you. And so, Father, may we look forward to that day when we see you face to face, faithfully share the gospel, grow in our walks with you, give you glory for all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.